Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream Q&A segment 184. It's late July. And you are Brett Weinstein. I am Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying, and uh, we are going to attempt to A your cues. All right, we start every uh, Q&A episode with a question from the wonderful people on our Discord server, and this week's question from the Discord server is this. Do you think there are risks to becoming very tanned from the sun if it's done gradually and without burning? I am inclined to avoid sunscreen and just use shade and clothes to avoid burns. Maybe what we consider very tanned is actually normal. Um, yeah, I think it is normal. I think um, obviously different people have different sensitivities. Uh, and this is, uh, and, and you know yourself best. And it is harder to predict now based on where you think your people are from. Um, going back into history, um, given that especially, um, I mean, all over the world, but especially in the U.S., we're all kind of mutts now. So uh, we've got lots of different um, different ethnicities and lineages that uh, have combined into each of us. So someone, you know, even, even full siblings may have very different sun sensitivities. But if uh, that is working for you, uh, I do not understand why um, you would work to not be tanned if you are not burning. My one uh, hesitation here has to do with the term very. Mm -hmm. There is a fair amount known about this. There was a paradox in uh, the dermatological literature, which is that sun exposure was understood to lead to skin cancer, but people who had extreme sun exposure over long periods of time, people who worked outdoors like cowboys, uh, had very low levels of skin cancer. So what the heck? Now, it turns out that the telomere work that I did reveals the answer to why this would be the case and actually allows us to give you some fairly precise advice. Sunburns are the thing you are attempting to avoid. Extreme sun exposure short of burns will not give you cancer, but it does do damage to your skin. It results in a loss of the flexibility of skin uh, due to destruction of collagen, which is hard to resurrect. The Obviously, there are substantial benefits to significant sun exposure, vitamin D production being one of the main ones, but not the only one. So the upshot is, yep, avoid sunscreen if you can do so without burning. I would say avoid extreme tanning. In other words, somewhat tan probably is healthy, but the benefits are going to go down and the other costs that are not uh, malignancies will go up. And that what you really want to do is shoot for the sweet spot, but that are... Well, but, but then... So how, how do you avoid extreme tanning? And, that, you know, extreme, very, you know, these are words that are squidgy. But I would say, um, you know, vitamin D is not the only benefit. Near-infrared radiation. Um, you know, there, there's just a lot of benefits to being outside. And usually, if you if you know yourself, you can sense when actually I, 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 I should get out in out of the sun at this point. And, uh, but if you, if your work or... Uh, you know, forces or allows uh, you to be outside a lot. Uh, the idea that um, you should not be outside, you should no. be covering yourself in sunscreen. Like no. I don't, I don't buy either of those as solutions. So that's, that's not what I'm saying. 
it's the very that suggests an effort put into tanning. Not at all. That, that explicitly not in this question. No effort put into tanning. That is not. Um, that is that is not the impetus here. I'm inclined to avoid sunscreen and just use shade and clothes to avoid burns. Well, but so this is this is this is I not agree. about you know should what do you think about putting baby oil on and lying out in the sun? That's that's not the question. Okay, still there is a gap between avoiding burns and uh, the optimal level of sun exposure. What sun exposure short of burns does, extreme sun exposure, is ages the skin. So you don't want to age your skin, but you are correct. The, the belief that we all intuitively carry that a tan person looks healthy is probably accurate. And so you're shooting for a sweet spot and burns are not the evidence that you're off it. Burns are several stages below or above that, that optimal level. So anyway, I, th I, think, I think in there, all of the stuff you would want to navigate a correct path is between what you said and what I did. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I agree with you. Um, you know, it's, I, I think if a person seeking shade while outside, when you are feeling that you are, when you feel that you are getting too much sun is the right thing to do. Yep. But heading inside or heading under shade when you are feeling good in the sun, but you have something in your head about like, well, I don't want to get too tan. That feels to me wrong. I, I, I think that that is going to be an error. Well, I mean, you know, I'm advocated and I, in fact, I do, as you do, take short breaks that long exposure to the sun punctuated by short breaks. Seems that's about burning. And I mean, it may be that you and I have different, um, different feelings here. Well, like, you know, a, I'm, I'm just, I always have been, but increasingly, especially in the summer, just like, I just want to be outside all the time. Yep. Um, but also you, you're my skin responds very differently. Yeah. I don't tan very well. And, um, you know, the older I get, the, the more likely I am to have issues, but you know, I, I just, I always tanned quickly and, uh, and the fact was uh, that, and I think this is true for most people who who tan easily and don't burn at all in their youth, um, that it's not that I kept on getting darker and darker as a kid, um, but I, like a younger son who I would call the nut brown boy, you know, after a couple of weeks just spending a lot of time outside, like he'd get that color and then it's not that he kept on getting darker. It's like, oh, you're the nut brown boy now. And, you know, same thing for me when I was little, just like you get, so I don't, I don't think that, um, I don't, I don't, I don't think you can even use a, a visual metric of like, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's too far now. Well, again, I, I think, I mean, the one thing I think I may have failed to say is that it is early sunburns that cause cancers, even though cancers happen late. Early in life. Early in life. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sunburns that you get when you're young for reasons that we've talked about before. And I, I think I won't go into here, but um, I, I think you have the knowledge you need, which is. Sun exposure is good to a point at which you start doing damage, and extreme damage is a risk for malignancy. Um, so navigating to healthy levels of tan is good, and if that's what you were asking about, then yep, you're right. And if you were asking about being deliberate about tanning and potentially going farther than you otherwise would, that's probably probably too far. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see that in the question at all, but I would say... Um... 
seeking a skin color that you find beautiful because you find it beautiful. A lot of people will do that, but that's if if that's your incentive, you may make mistakes. Yeah. Right. Um, being outside and having a collateral benefit be that you end up with a skin color that you find more beautiful uh, is is a different thing. So at some level, you're you're suggesting something about incentives, I think. Well, actually, there is one way in which the incentive for an attractive tan is probably healthier than just incidental tan, which is, and I, I don't know this to be true, but I would bet strongly in favor of this, that lots of sun exposure is positive for near-infrared reasons, for vitamin D reasons, for general health reasons. The way we clothe ourselves such that when we are in the sun, large parts of us go almost unexposed is probably not good. And this, I, I actually, I think there is something important here and I have not, I've not seen the literature. I haven't done a ton of looking, but um, I will say that um, just anecdotally, uh, I never wore um, two-piece but i never i never wore bikinis i was just not, i was not interested in doing so yeah uh and i certainly don't now um but i got a two-piece bathing suit um for paddle boarding um precisely because i had this sense of actually maybe i want even though i don't i don't i don't want to be that unclothed in public right but like i would actually like some sun on my yeah. torso which i haven't had sun on my torso in like ever basically yeah. And um, not only did I get some sun right away that was visible, but um, I also started feeling healthier in ways in my gut, actually, that I had, and maybe it was coincidental, but it felt like, oh, this, this, there might be something very important here about actually exposing all of your skin yeah. uh, to the sun, as opposed to, I mean, like at this point, I've been biking a lot, my forearms, have had, I mean, to, to your point, I think my forearms have had too much sun exposure. Yeah. Frankly, they're, you know, they're getting kind of crispy and, and they're not burnt at all. But, yeah. um, and I would, you know, I would, <laughs> I would rather cover these and like have my back exposed, but I'm not going to bike without a shirt. Yeah. Now, I, uh, it also raises a question as to whether or not uh, the vitamin D deficiency that us uh, Northern dwellers have is entirely about um, lack of exposure to the sun in terms of time rather than surface area. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah. there's something to be done when you can afford to expose more of your body rather than expose the same parts of your body for longer. Probably there's a, a increased benefit of doing yeah. that. Yeah, I And so. I guess my, my final point was if you're looking for an aesthetically pleasing tan, that is what you would do, mm -hmm. right? Tan lines are considered uh, a negative with respect to a tan. So anyway, somebody who was yeah, thinking for, for some people, <clears throat> that's that's not universal. Okay. Um, but you know the the so called farmer's tan is is usually not what people. It's are looking not what for. people are shooting for. No. Yeah. No, not even farmers. Presumably. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, let's go to the questions at darkersubmissions.com. The drag competition sounds like queering. Watched a socialist presentation that described queering as a political act of disrupting the normal. 
seems that judging was based on how much the performer bucked against what they perceive as expected or normal, that is, as in merit. Uh, P.S. Consider adding another payment option, please. Uh, to, the, to the last question, I don't think that we have an ability to add other payment options on this. Very, uh, very, very yeah, um, which I apologize for. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I had written into a draft of the piece that I shared part of um, in the first hour. Uh, I observed these four, I, I mentioned um, our conversation, but didn't put into the piece that I observed these four guys um, in the front of the audience who were just gorgeous, fabulous gay guys. It looked like they came out of the Castro district in, in San Francisco and they didn't look like almost anyone else in the audience. And, uh, just watching them a little bit. I thought, I wonder if they think of themselves as queer. And I don't think so. I think that's just kids bursting around. Go on. Okay. Sorry. Um, we had a stuff. There's, I think just people playing but it sounded yeah yeah okay. yep. um apologies um probably you probably couldn't hear any of that but it was diabolical yeah, yeah um the dog's alarmed i was wondering if those men viewed themselves as queer and my thought was i don't think so i i, I bet not and i thought about writing in something like it this you know, what what is it and i think you know that q in lgbtq uh well there's two q's right the, the, the queer q as opposed to the questioning q questioning we at least can understand what that might mean right uh you have pointed out over and over and over again like could someone just define this for me well wait, two, no. wait hold on to queer uses a verb i have heard in exactly this way to you know disrupt the normal to disrupt social norms and i think that is a, a giant part of what we're experiencing and it's um <laughs> it's disruptive all right and it's it's extremely damaging as i explore in a piece of the essay that i didn't share um but that doesn't actually answer the question of what the noun means because too queer and being queer aren't actually necessarily related. No, I think they are. I think it's just disrupt. I, I, yes. I'm just something that's not normal. It is. You didn't see this coming, but it also means that you can be just cryptically like it's the one thing that you can be like, yeah, I'm that, and I changed nothing about myself. So I think I think that's kind of the point. And yeah. So I initially made this point. I tweeted, if the Q was eliminated from LGBTQ, who would be excluded? Right. Who is not covered by those other letters? Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that nobody can come up with an answer, there's nobody who doesn't qualify under the other letters who needs the Q, means that this is about, this is a, a, a challenge to your sense that this is, you know, a, an acronym or whatever it is. Uh, it's not an acronym, it's not an just acronym. a list of, it's just an abbreviation. But this is a, it's not even an abbreviation, but whatever it is. Um, this is a sequence that names people who are oppressed in some way. The fact that the Q is redundant with the other letters means that this is actually, this is an activist position. This isn't about, mm -hmm. I, I'm in a, uh, a category and that category faces problems. It's about uh, forcing people, you know, by, it's like the pronoun thing, right? Look, he, she, normal pronouns. Mm -hmm. If you are trans and you want me to say she and you're presenting yourself as female, okay. Um, but to force me to zer, 
that is an exercise of power. I'm going to force you to say a word that is not a word to you in order to demonstrate that you have accepted my whatever, right? And it shouldn't be necessary for trans, right? There's, if you're trans, he or she should work. Um, so it is a demonstration of power. And the idea that if you're going to say LGBTQ, then you are accepting the power structure. And if you're just going to say LGBT, then you are demonstrating that you are not on board with something. And it actually reminds me of something I've referred to now a couple times in different contexts about what Matt Taibbi said about authoritarian regimes and the fact that under authoritarian regimes, people are constantly murmuring fealty to the uh, establishment because silence is understood to be suspect. Mm -hmm. And so by getting someone, every time they invoke LGBT to either be uh, either demonstrate that they're on board with the activism or demonstrate that they're not. And I thought that was your example of not being on board. If you don't include the if Q. If you don't include, then... every time you say LGBT, the question is, are you going to say Q or not? Hmm. If you're going to say, if you're well, going to. Well, but I mean, I think the, the rifts, the, 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 the fault lines are everywhere. <clears throat> because increasingly, a lot of people are arguing, I think correctly, uh, that T has no place in that. That LGB is a thing, uh -huh. right? Um, and that um, put aside for the moment whether or not you think Trans is real but rare. Um, um, trans is everywhere people say it is. Like, for, forget what your position is on T, but it is a matter of identity as opposed to interest. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, sexual orientation is about who you want to be with, and trans is about who you think you are, and um, those aren't those aren't the same thing. So, well, um, it ought to be true. And, the, and the tea has taken over and is is pushing is aside and and destroying some number of people, uh, uh, you know, in in the LGB community to the degree. I, I, I th like I the word community is now so ridiculous, right? But I do think that I think that the phrase LGB community makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Although B B like, is a so little so weird. the fault lines you yeah. can just keep going back, right? But, like, Let's point out the following uh, oddity. Yeah. If trans, the phenomenon, the modern phenomenon that we see, is real and just something that we have undernoticed in the past, then it ought to be true that the vast majority of people who are trans, right, if you're male but you feel female, then you... Over the overwhelming majority of such people ought to be attracted to men, right? Because the overwhelming majority of females are attracted to men. If this is some sort of strange special category um, that does not abide by the normal rules of gender, then you might expect something different like what we see. But my, my point would be, to the extent that you have uh, men identifying as women, but then also lesbian, so that they don't have to sleep with men, um, that is conspicuous. That that is what you would do if you were trying to opt into this protected category but not have to uh, sleep with people you didn't find attractive. The whole thing is conspicuous Yes. at this point. Um, yeah, a lot more to say, but let's, let's move on. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but I think it's a, it's a good point. It's, it's, it's queering and I mean, but actually not, I'm not going to move on yet. Uh, Batty girl, Rachel, who wrote this question says, 
that she picked this up from watching a socialist presentation that described queering as a political act of disrupting the normal. What did, what, how, how, <laughs> how are all of these things, these identities and these ideologies piling on top of each other with, with like the Venn diagram is crazy. Like, of course it's a socialist, pre socialist presentation. You say that, I'm like, yes, obviously, but what, when did that happen? Well, but you know, okay. So, uh, again, I'm still not comfortable with the, the descriptor, but which descriptor? the team loser descriptor oh, explains this, <laughs> yeah. right? If yeah. all of the folks yeah. who detect that they are actually not going to do very well in a merit-based achievement-based reward system decide hey let's rush them right? <laughs> Fuck merit. we're gonna need a lot of us because yeah. we're not really good at running <laughs> anything else indeed <laughs> not with these feather bows <laughs> i think i've point. seen the same description like both simultaneously pro-queering and describing exactly that as just let's fuck shit up basically yeah let's just destroy everything normal I've seen the same thing. I think in school, I think it was showed to me because, of course, they right. were doing this. But it is the same idea as we see all over the place of just burn it all down before we have anything better. Yeah. Because we really don't like this. You know. And it's exactly, I mean, it's it's what happened in Portland in the summer and fall of 2020. It's oh, like yeah. When, you know, when Antifa was allowed to just run rampant and, you know, and, the, and then um, what? Election night, right? So they, they took oh. a, they took a little break. It was a hundred straight nights, hundred straight days of protests, and then and hundred straight nights of riots. And they took a little break when the rains came, and um, the election happened, and Biden's elected, and they get irate and start and keep burning shit down, and they say they're ungovernable, yep. and and you know they come like there's always going to be a reason to destroy shit if what you want to do is destroy shit. And the the mainstream media and everyone else spent months and months covering for these people and still are. And it's oh, it was a, it was a very good trick. If it you was, vote, it was, it was the if, cleverest thing I'm sure any of them have ever done. If frankly. you vote for Trump, we are going to burn shit down. Yeah. We voted for Biden. We're still going to burn shit down. <laughs> yeah, we are. Right, that, you already did it. Yeah, <laughs> you already you, you already did your vote Psych. thing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's nonsense. But. Um, another point but i've now forgotten it yeah it was in the past oh yes. okay well let's let's move into the future then mm -hmm. uh brett you said on the ai guest episode that you had learned a lot from engineers when talking about cross-field knowledge what are some examples please and then parentheticals i think he's got what he he says he's an electrical electrical engineer with huge cross-field hobbies so it's like this You've got physics. Physics and math as an extension of it are completely unforgiving, right? The rules of the universe are the rules and they are absolute. Engineers have to work at the level of the practical, right? Everything, you can't define the size of a piece that fits between two other pieces and have them all be precisely accurate because you won't be able to get it into place. So you have tolerances on everything. Now, biology is like engineering. It deals with the uncertainties, the ambiguities, there are tolerances built into everything. And biologists don't quite get that distinction between their field and something like physics. They don't understand that you're building an organism 
that something is building an organism that has to function in an uncertain world in which nothing will be quite right, in which two genomes come together and make an individual, and that individual has to function without gaps in it. So it has to be built in such a way that there are tolerances, which is why when you... Redundancies all over the place. Redundancies, the rules that govern embryogenesis and embryological and uh, development are not the rules of a blueprint that specifies the size of things. They say, you know, link this thing to that thing by the, you know, the most chemically, uh, you know, by a path that is defined by a gradient of chemicals that are then followed, which results, as you pointed out many times when you came home from teaching your anatomy labs, that very often you would see the same a creature, ostensibly a cat, you were dissecting, and their circulatory architecture would be idiosyncratic because the rules that built it were not the rules of a blueprint. They were the rules of um, accomplish X, which then makes allowances for whatever else it encounters along the way. Well, it depends. It just to, and and we wrote this in the book too. Um, it depends very much on what the system is, right? So if you got a room full of open dissected cats and you do in a muscle anatomy lab, <clears throat> you know the masseter in a tomcat is likely to be bigger than a masseter in an old female, right, or an old fixed male, uh, or just a fixed male. Um, but its origin point and its insertion point are going to be the same because a muscle works by being attached to two or more points. And if it's not attached to those two points, then it's not the same muscle, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it sounds almost tautological said that way, but, it, but it's not. Uh, whereas the circulatory system has to get blood everywhere in the body. And uh, it will generally, you know, start with big vessels and then they'll branch off into smaller vessels. You know, it's like arteries to arterioles to capillaries and then back through venules and into veins. Um, but given that the blood has to get everywhere, the fact that you know even the aortic arch in uh, in in mammals, which usually has a, a very particular shape, has a bunch of different variations because the blood's got to get there somehow. And if something happened in development, something tripped it up, something you know there was a difference in timing, a, you know something showed up where it doesn't usually, it doesn't matter. Whereas, you know, if the masseter isn't hooked up to the same things that it's hooked up to in other organisms, you're not going to have that cheek muscle. You're not going to be able to chew. You're not going to be able to eat. You're going to die. Whereas if your you know, blood vessels are um, rooted somewhat differently, but the blood still gets everywhere, you're okay. So which system it is that has the tolerances is built in uh, is uh, going to depend a lot on what the function of the system is. Right. And so because biologists think, oh, biology, chemistry, physics, yada, yada, it's yada. It's the sciences. Right. It's the sciences. Right. And they don't realize that their discipline is actually distantly related to physics. It's related, yeah. but it's distantly related to physics. It's much more closely related to engineering, even though there's no engineer. It's so that's a, it's a weird, it's a weird conclusion. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have put it close I know to engineering, but I, but I guess I, I don't think of it as close to engineering. Um, but I see, I see that there are things that engineers inherently understand because there is an outcome because it, you know, you, it just, you can talk all you want about what you think natural selection might do. And in fact, you know, we do a lot and we did a lot with our students and all of this. Um, but the fact is, if you imagine that something really should exist on this planet, given X, Y, and Z, and it simply does not, um, it's possible selection hasn't come up with it. Um, but it's also possible that you haven't figured out what the restrictions are on that form actually being functional in the environment in which you would have it be. Yeah. Well, I would say the thing that groups 
and it's not just engineering and biology. Engineering, biology, economics is that there is an objective. Mm -hmm. There's no objective in physics, yeah. right? Quasars are not a success or a failure. They're just quasars, right? Yeah. A rabbit is a success. A mm -hmm. dead rabbit is a failure, right? Um, Unless you're the fox. That is a successful fox. <laughs> but yeah. so there's something about objective which unifies this, and there's something about practicality and the way you arrange practicality, right? If a physicist is deciding, you know, you're going to have a wall, and the physicist decides the dimension of the wall and therefore how much concrete is in it. Mm -hmm. But the physicist isn't paying attention to the fact that the structure that holds the concrete when you pour it is uh, a variable, right? That it doesn't have a precise volume. And they say, put in this much concrete. Well, then you're either not going to have enough concrete or it's going to overflow. The chances that you're going to hit that variable perfectly is zero. Mm -hmm. The way you do it is you say, fill the space with concrete, and then you use empirically as much concrete as you need. Right. Uh, or you take two objects that need to meet. How do you do that without a gap or without not being able to fit them? Well, learn you joinery. have them. Uh, you could learn joinery. You could use a flange that would allow them to come close and a flange to cover the gap. There are lots of practical ways of doing this. And mm -hmm. so the point is a practically minded scientist mm -hmm is much more the person to talk to. You know, when I say to an engineer, you cannot simultaneously maximize two variables, they're like, duh, duh calculus, <laughs> right? Right. Um, if you say yeah. in biology, you know, you cannot simultaneously maximize two variables, the biologist said, well, how do you know that? Well, right? That's, that's, that's interesting. I'm trying, so one of my dissertation chapters uh, was on that. Um, on the fact, you know, on, on limiting, limiting factors, uh, and, and how at any one point, like I, I would, I discovered, and of course it was in, you know, these poison frogs in Madagascar, but, um, I found in different parts of the forest, different limiting factors, mm -hmm. right? And none of the people on my dissertation committee objected to the, the premise and the conclusion that there can only be one limiting factor at a time. Um, but some of the people who read it, some of the, no one asked me during my defense, but afterwards, some of the ecologists, of course, were like, what do you mean there can only be one limiting factor? Right. Like, what do you think limiting means? Right. And, like, and that's a place, actually, that a chemist will get it. Right. Because, you know, when you're yes. when you're doing synthesis, yeah. you encounter exactly this fact. Right. Yeah. And, you know, something is limiting until it's used up and something else becomes limiting. So um, these styles of thought vary a lot for me, figuring out how tradeoffs in biology worked, traded heavily on knowledge of photography where you have trade-offs and you have multiple parameters that you might seek to maximize. Are you trying to freeze motion? Mm -hmm. Are you trying to get a high depth of field? Do, how much light do you have? You know, these are things that trade off against each other. So it's yeah. a system that has enough complexity, but not so much complexity that you can't understand what's going on. So it makes a proper model. Likewise, aviation does mm -hmm. the same thing. History of bike building does the same thing. All of me, pottery. Yeah, all clay, of clay bodies and, and glaze chemistry and yeah, right. All of these things inherently practical realms, and they provide mm -hmm. a better model in biology than uh, um, than uh, these precise realms that are theoretical and fully rule based. They can live entirely in the abstract. Yeah.
Okay. Regarding regarding the episode 180 Q&A, so that's four episodes ago. Latent viruses wait for weakness and injury before they activate, weakness or injury before they activate. Is therefore a possible benefit of cold plunge to signal to latent viruses to activate so the immune system destroys them? So, I mean, this just sounds a little bit like like heat shock proteins, right? Like, you know, like, yeah, give give your body a shock when it's healthy. Uh, and, and, you know, the mechanism here may not be exactly right, but maybe it is. Um, but I, I think we know from history and anecdote uh, that uh, pushing yourself when you're healthy will make you more resistant and resilient when it turns out you're not healthy. Yeah, I, I, li I like your framework here, that the idea is the cold plunge may simulate a vulnerability for a very brief period of time enough to get a latent virus to, uh, to emerge mm -hmm. and, and become uh, pathogenic. Yeah, but that's, that's the questioner's framework. Right, yeah. but the there was something about the way the questioner phrased it that I didn't I didn't think got get got all the way there. Yeah, but the way you're saying it, the cold plunge, it there's a circularity in the question. The way the question is posed, do you want the cold plunge to trigger the emergence of the virus so that you can fight it and be healthy? I think it, I think what is assumed if I if 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 I read the question, I think. What I assume reading the question is that he is taking for granted that when you go into a cold plunge, you're healthy. Right. Because what kind of person goes into a cold plunge when they don't feel good? It's right. hard enough to get into it when, which you, is, when which you go Which is probably healthy. why you don't do it. Right. It's a bad moment to yeah. trigger those things. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think I think there is something potentially to this. Mm -hmm. um, and Yeah, I like it. Yeah. We're Regarding the need for hypotheses before data, what about with vaccines, where we have a big need to understand and not lose much past data? Is it okay in this case if the data comes before the hypotheses? I'm not yet understanding. I, I don't. I don't see it because I, I, don't, I, I don't. I just don't understand. Okay. I don't either. Okay. But I think it's pretty safe to say, every time you generate a novel vaccine. Or any drug, mm -hmm. any any drug, biologic, pharmaceutical, whatever you want to call it. The hypothesis is this is more harmful than it is beneficial. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it has to be. That has to be the null. It's at the very least a hypothesis, and any data you collect on uh, efficacy and safety is collected yeah. in light of that obvious hypothesis. Yes, it should be stated, but even if it's not stated, it's not like you're data set evaporates because you didn't say out loud, well, why were you doing a safety test? Mm -hmm. um, because I hypothesized that they were unsafe, right? That's obvious. That's why you're doing the test. It's inherent to the regulations that force you to do the test. Yeah. And so, and I think this is actually, a have run into this problem a lot where in my theoretical work, sometimes it will turn out that there is an obvious hypothesis of something you've been working on that you never stated, and then you run into the data. And it's like, well, is that invalid because the hypothesis wasn't stated, mm -hmm. or is it valid because the hypothesis was obvious and didn't need to be stated? And so what you need, and it's just like the rule, you know, that uh, the data cannot precede the hypothesis. Well, does that mean that I can't look evidence that lives in a library yeah, that not, I didn't... That's not a chronological statement. Right. It's that, not... That's in the mind of the person, in the mind of the scientist who was doing the work. 
Right. Uh, what has meant there is you can't already know what the data say before you propose your hypothesis because that's not, and, and then use that same data to test your hypothesis because that's not a test. Right. So example, yeah. um, if if I don't believe the uh, the area hypothesis for the species diversity gradient, the area hypothesis being well, there's more area the closer you get to the equator, more land area. That's why we see more species. Right. And I say. Well, but that would suggest that the relationship evaporates if we include uh, oceans. Otherwise, it's a tautology. I can go look in the library and I can test my hypothesis that afternoon based on evidence that was already collected about land area, water area, species diversity in these habitats. The evidence does not have to be collected after the hypothesis was stated. It just has to be found in light of the hypothesis being stated, not having been uh, available beforehand, available to the person doing the hypothesis, hypothesizing. But with regard to the particular example that you just raised, mm -hmm. uh, there's more area on the planet between the tropic lines than there are than there is between... The, right. The, and my point is then this is not a biological explanation. It is a geometric explanation that has nothing to do with species diversity okay, and doesn't okay. account. I thought you were arguing something. No, 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 no. Sorry. Um, within the Venn diagram sphere of weaponized VAX programs, I don't know what that Venn diagram sphere looks like, or Venn diagram. Within the Venn diagram sphere of weaponized VAX programs, CIA's bin Laden search, a polio initiative, conjunct with any ongoing concerns? Do you know what that means? What's bin Laden doing here? I don't know. Um, uh, but I, like, I don't, there's someone who writes in a lot i don't think i didn't just make it up but i don't i don't know anything about this i don't know what um cia bin laden and polio aren't three things that i've put together before um so i don't, I don't know wait 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 it. i don't recall it being about polio there was something about the search for bin laden having used a fraudulent scientific effort in which Pea samples were collected, I think. Pea? Yeah. Like urine or urine. legumes? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, urine was collected in Pakistan. From Ostensibly, legumes. No, 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 no. From, from, from people. Oh, okay. That's why they call them that, people. No. Um, but there was some fraudulent program used to find bin Laden based on a genetic signature in urine his presumably descendants who might have had their urine collected. That was, I don't, I don't think it was polio was the disease that was being looked for. So somebody ran a science experiment that wasn't a science experiment. It was the CIA okay. looking for bin Laden using sequencing to detect close relatives. Okay. So you combined the, like, what was the false story and what was the, what were they actually trying to do? I get it. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't so, know anything about that. I don't know anything about this. <laughs> Well, it doesn't mean you can't have an opinion. I, I apparently, but I think I'm going to avoid that. Yeah. This time. So I don't, I don't know what concern. I mean, this is in the past. Yes, it destroyed lots of credibility. Um, is is it? Does might it have anything to do with ongoing concerns? Is what the question is asking. But we just don't know enough about. Yeah. I mean, is the CIA still up to nefarious stuff? Oh, certainly. What else are they? What, 
they haven't become a florist. What do they exist for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, nefarious <laughs> stuff is their stock and trade. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let me just do this. To... Boy, I feel like I'm on some alternate timeline. Um, did I just read this question? Regarding the need for hypotheses before data, what about with facts? I did, I did that yeah. one, right? So it's possible I clicked on a question that didn't get answered, unfortunately. I can do a credit. Yeah, could you see? Or maybe, maybe it just got written twice, which is a possibility. But um, okay, what is the evolutionary origin and purpose of kissing and other mouth-based contact? Why do we find it so pleasurable both on the lips and elsewhere? Um, that's... Mm, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, part, look, part of it's going to be that the, the mouth is going to be, um, you know, have a lot of sensory neurons in it because it's where you're taking in food. And so you've got a lot, a lot of ability to, to taste there. And part of what you're doing with a partner is tasting them. Uh, and it, you know, usually that's going to make people kind of go like, yeah, but like, no, it is what you're doing. And you're sensing all sorts of things about honestly who they are and how healthy they are and all sorts of things at a non-conscious level and your lips and your mouth uniquely qualified to do that. That's a, that's one kind of answer. Um, I wonder if, I mean, look, there's the proximate answer, which you just alluded to that you've got a lot of sensory neurons. And then there's, I think, a question about whether or not, this is probably just polluted in the modern environment, mm. but in an ancestral environment, I wonder if this would be women testing men, but the problem for women, of course, is men who aren't really committed, but are willing to pretend that they are committed in order to inseminate and leave. That's evolutionarily a huge bargain. I wonder if the act of kissing doesn't uh, reveal either whether the person is really present and Leaves a emotionally signature. committed or, nope. uh, you know trying to skip the foreplay and get to the main event. Yeah, it's it's another it's another uh line of communication or unintentional communication by one person and uh you know unconsciously receiving information by the other but um but I mean, it's a way to get information. Yeah, in in extreme let, let's take an ancestral environment where there's no birth control and so there's going to be a long delay in getting to sexual intercourse. The a guy who is just trying to inseminate and go isn't going to be into months and months and months of kissing. In fact, he may be weirded out by it um, because it's a very intimate activity. So, in other words, a a test like um, like all of the other stuff that goes along with courting mm -hmm. is yeah, uh, but not wanting to do it doesn't necessarily mean weirded out by it. Well, I don't know. I don't know quite how to phrase it, but um, but my sense is it's the kind of thing that people in love would be endlessly entertained by, and that somebody who is pretending to be in love, yep, might not be. Yep. 
yeah, not, I, I would say not weirded out, but just like, what, why this? Can't we do something more interesting? <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. This is a two-part question, or maybe it's just written into things from Echo. <clears throat> What's the distinction between racism and anti-Semitism? Does anti-Semitism accumulate um, to wealth transfer prerogatives, extracting from a race, also known as a genocidal impulse, and extracting from elites, also known as a Marxist impulse, if so, anti-white resentment seems similar. Why a specific term? There's a lot in there in the middle that I'm not understanding. Um, but I think the, you know the the bigger question is what is what is the difference? There, there are isms. Um, to what degree are they different kinds of isms from each other? Insofar as we know for sure that like sexism is a different kind of ism entirely. Um. So I've done a lot of work in this area going back to college. The hypothesis that I've advanced is that the Jewish diaspora, which leaves Jews as a small minority living amongst others, means that when growth is present, when times are good, that uh, other cultures partner with Jews, and that when times are bad, that it is um, inevitable that they are viewed, you know, you ever see these cartoons where the two cartoon animals are stranded, the, their boat has sank and they are in a lifeboat together, and the one animal starts looking at the other animal as a delicious turkey dinner rather than a turkey. Yeah. Um, rather than, as it turns out, a pangolin. It's like, I don't turn into a turkey dinner, I'm a pangolin. <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, the point is, this is what we covered in our, our book about transfer frontiers. And the point is, what is distinct about Jews is two things. One, for whatever reason, probably because in part there is a long history of selection on Jewish culture for living as a diaspora. Jews tend to succeed despite being small minorities. And therefore, a transfer from Jews is more lucrative than a transfer from populations that are struggling. So if you imagine a diaspora population that does well under diaspora conditions and then conditions go bad, targeting Jews is just uh, going to be an evergreen for the reasons that you cite with the genocidal impulse, which is why we have to stop playing the game of talking about this as if it has something to do with Jewishness and start talking about it as, yes, human beings have genocidal potential and... Uh, in order to arrest that genocidal potential, we have to understand what it's trying to do. It's trying to spread genes. How does it do that? By theft. How do you accomplish mm -hmm. the theft? Genocide, right? That That is a, a cascade that we have to not allow to unfold. Mm -hmm. I would say that Jews are not the only population for which there will be unique racism. And I will point out that in North America, you would find anti-Semitism for the same reason that you will find it anywhere else. You will also find anti-black racism because of the history of slavery um, and the impact that that has had. In other words, blacks are not just an amorphous other. Blacks were systematically hobbled in order to make them compliant. And so that has a uh, a residue in our culture that is stubborn. 
and likewise Native Americans who had to be sidelined uh, by Europeans in order for Europeans to do what they did in North America and South America. And so anyway, those three groups, I would argue, face something special that is not the same as what other immigrant groups faced in uh, coming to America. Hmm. I guess I would have to hear carefully again what the distinction you are making, um, I mean, among other truths, uh, while all humans not in Africa could be considered immigrants, the Native Americans um, are not exactly an immigrant immigrant group. No, they're not an immigrant group. Um, and you you were talking about other immigrant groups, um, but obviously, you know, the Japanese in in the U.S. Um, have had a um, and have been imprisoned, uh, and um, before and after 9-11, um, Muslims had a relatively different sort of experience in, in the U.S. We were living in Michigan when 9-11 happened, uh, which, uh, happens to have, uh, a, a large concentration of Muslim Americans and, um, that community, again, that word, but, uh, that community was particularly affected, obviously, as we all know, but, uh, we were able to see some of that in real time. Yep. Um. So. Well, I mean, it, it's a longer discussion, but um, the fact populations will have encountered Jewish diasporas all over the place. Yeah. And so the idea that there is some built-up historical uh, resentment circuit that gets triggered in yeah. bad times is, is what I'm alluding to. Yeah. Uh, I did not... It was interesting to discover, which I learned relatively late, that George Washington had actually been uh, an advocate. He um, advocated to protect Jews in the early, in the colonies. All four of them? <laughs> that's the thing. I didn't realize that there really were Jews in the yeah. colonies until I read this. So there, there, it, was, it was more than that? It, I mean, there was a sizable was a, enough population for him to there was be a thinking community. about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so anyway, the point is Jews are a strange phenomenon in that diaspora is a permanent state for uh, most populations of Jews. And that means that um, there's sort of a, it's not a novelty interaction when they come into contact with other cultures. So the distinction you were making with regard to the three groups that are distinctly um, targeted, I don't know exactly what the word is, um, but in North America is about... Um, having lost or never having had at least in modern times a homeland um that is even an option is is that the distinction no i think the point is the special origin story right so you had europeans who had superior but, but, but the origin story for those three groups is all, all three of them is very very different very different but the point is it's not you know the the origin story for Chinese immigrants and Irish immigrants isn't all that different. There's something uh, that motivates leaving one's home culture and coming to a place where there is at least formal openness to success. And so for the majority of populations, the origin story is at least similar. For blacks, the origin story is radically different. Right. Um, for Native Americans, it's radically different, and the permanent diaspora nature of Jews makes their origin story different. So that I mean, I, 
I don't know exactly what's to be gained here. I guess I, but you know, what about the Roma then? What about the gypsies? Well, the gypsies are such a tiny population that. But George Washington cared about them. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, but I mean, like, I so, think that's so with, a, a, with a similar, you know, similar story um, by these metrics um, to Jews, but existing at much smaller numbers throughout history. Much smaller numbers, yeah. and as far as I know, uh, probably much lower levels of wealth. And so from the point of view of the value of the transfer frontier, it is both. Troubadours, they were tra traveling entertainers. Right. Was the niche that they, that they often created for themselves. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I think that, that explains the distinction there. How much, how much value is there in, uh, and I'm obviously not defending any of this, but yeah, yeah. Uh, when a population turns on a diaspora population, how much does it get? Um, I think that's yeah. uh, a big part of the story. Okay. Sorry, I'm looking for... Okay. Um, for the COVID unvaxxed, should we be concerned about getting a blood transfusion? Yeah, I would be. Yeah. I... Yeah. I, I'm afraid so. I mean, and at the very least, we can do the same thing that we did with the so-called vaccines to begin with. The question has not been studied. It's an obvious question. The spike and protein persists. Other parts of it may as well, but we know the spike protein persists. Not only that, but the uh, hyper-stabilized mRNAs. So, yeah. look, I would be uh, in an emergency where you need blood and there's no time to get blood that's unvaccinated. I would say... It's going to be a small fraction of the harm that one might get uh, from being vaccinated themselves. It is. I'm remembering when when people were being refused surgery that they needed because they were unvaccinated. Yeah. Um, and apparently, there's now a premium on unvaccinated blood. Of course. Is there? Yeah. Um, I, mean, I would. I was sort of waiting for that moment, but I haven't. I haven't seen evidence of it. I've read it. I don't know how reliable the sources are, but I've read it multiple times, um, which it makes a lot of sense. But in any case, look, there's a question about how recently the vaccination happened. Right. Right. So, and therefore how diffuse the harm is likely to be and how diluted the consequence. But look, as we've talked about before, let's take the stubborn question of shedding. Shedding if this is simply a matter of molecules that do harm, shedding shouldn't be a significant issue because mm -hmm. the fraction of a dose that one could get through shedding would be tiny compared to the fraction of a dose that somebody got by being inoculated directly. But the fact that shedding may well have or produce evidence of significant harm suggests there could be another mechanism, right? Obviously, viruses are shed and you, they make you very sick because they reproduce. So the number of viruses that you actually encountered is not a good measure of how sick you're going to get. It's how many viruses they are able to produce once they invade your cells. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, a prion effect could do something like that, a contagious misfolding of proteins. So anyway, point is, I would be less worried about it than... Uh, not getting blood if you're bleeding out. Well, there and I, it's, yeah, it's 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 going to be less bad than 
uh, dying from loss of blood, mm-hmm. and it's going to be less bad than getting inoculated yourself. It's I don't think it's a non-issue, and I would certainly, if any of us needed blood, I would work very hard to, um, you know, if we could donate it to each other, that'd be the obvious right thing to do. Yep. And if we couldn't, I would be interested in sourcing blood that uh, was from an unvaccinated person. And I'm sorry to say it, but yep. um, I don't think it's, I don't think we should beat around the bush, especially given uh, how people went after those who refused to get vaccinated, uh, you know, all, not all that many months ago. Yeah. Um, similar question uh, with a dollar amount of 3.14. I like to think that he just donated pi. That's all. There's always room to donate pi. RH negative mothers receive Rogam blood product, blood supply vaxxed donors. Presumably there's a missing word there. Uh, Blood supplies from vaxxed donors. What are your thoughts? So I think we sort of already did this. I I don't know anything about Rogan blood product. I don't like, um, but it's related. You okay? I'm just trying to figure how all these things factor together. Rh negative. I don't. I don't. I don't know why Rh mothers are in particular need of. Are they in particular need of blood product because they're Rh negative? Do they get? I don't. Well, if they're Rh negative, then. They cannot accept RH positive blood, which reduces the. I don't remember the ratios. I don't like I with regard to RH positive and RH negative. I know like, you know, AB is you know over in the other type of blood. Um, AB is pretty rare. I think it's like A is maybe the most common. Whatever, but I don't know if RH negative is super super rare. It may be that. Someone RH negative comes in, it's like, okay, we're not going to look in our supply because we just don't have it. I don't think RH negative is super rare. Okay. Um, Yeah, I don't really understand the question. I mean, for one thing, the other blood groups aren't spelled out, are they? Nope. No, it's just RH negative. So why? That's just that's a that's just. I mean, there there is there is a syndrome in which mother and offspring, mother and offspring, are incompatible based on. Uh, RH factor. Um, Incompatible for blood transfusion? Right, which is normally... No, it's it's not even transfusion. Their blood is incompatible. And yet the placental, like, that's all working fine. Yes, but there's a syndrome in which it's not. So it may be a leaks leaks or something. I'm not sure. I don't remember. It's been a long time. But I'm just sort of dimly aware that pregnancy and RH factor, when... Offspring and mother are in different phases on the RH. One is negative and one is positive, that there is something yeah. that goes wrong. I do not know. Um, hello, do you know much about Willamette University? Is it survivable quality? Uh, I know someone who went there a long time ago and had a great experience there. Uh, I don't know anything about it now. Don't uh, have you? Do you know anything about Willamette University? Yeah. I'm afraid not. Um, I have talked with her. Um, she's 10 years older than us, so she was there in the um, late 70s, I guess, uh, and loved it then. Uh, and I think there's some amount of um, typical college catalog-looking wokeification that is apparent in the communications that she re- she is receiving now, but I don't really know anything more than that, I'm afraid. So a couple of comments about um, 
from our first com- our first topic in the first hour, Hollywood makes a false depiction of the other side to falsely drive girls' choices. Yeah, so they're trying to push push girls one way um, by making the other way look ugly, regardless mm-hmm. of what the thing is. And then um, same person, different comment. Most conservative women I know, conservative women I know, are homestead types. TV Barbie isn't raising kids. Mm-hmm. No, that's probably that's probably right. Um, <clears throat> Okay, let's just get through a couple more here and then uh, call it a day. Shall All we? right. Yeah. It has been a day. It has been a day. Um, oh, this one. There's a link, uh, and I'll show the link in a second. Uh, apparently, humanity has ushered Earth into a new epoch. What are your thoughts? And so it's this article. You can show my screen uh, from the CBC. Canada's Crawford Lake chosen as Golden Spike to mark proposed new epoch. And it's some incredibly deep, I just spent a couple minutes with this during the break, it's incredibly deep lake where you can get sediment cores and uh, you can, you know, oh, here's some established epochs and you can look and see um, that, you know, you can, there's actually evidence of the Dust Bowl when the, you know, the middle of uh, the U.S. was blowing so dry that there's actually a, a, a stripe, a, a striation, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, Strata. A, a strata is stratum is a strata is a cake a stratum um i'm gonna call it a stripe a stripe for the dust bowl and then um later you have um a a stripe uh that includes plutonium from oh, the nice. early testing of the bomb uh and that is uh the moment that they're saying okay that's maybe, maybe that's the beginning then of the uh, anthropocene um but i will say um that this this reminds me this discussion you know are we in a new epoch is it the anthropocene or are we still in the holocene reminds me very much of the is pluto a planet mm-hmm. conversation because in both cases there is a reality things are changing things did change um but our description of them are the social constructs like th- this is the little bit of the postmodernism that is actually true right like planets the category planet doesn't inherently exist, right? There are things that are rocky or gaseous that orbit stars. And then there are other things that orbit those things, and those are called satellites. And then there are things like, well, is it orbiting, you know, is it orbiting the star more or is it orbiting the other planet it's closer to more? Well, it doesn't care. It doesn't have, it, it, there's no objective, it's just as you were talking about in astronomy. Um, and the same thing with like an epic. Is it an epic? Well, okay. A year is a real thing. A year is an astronomical reality. A day is an astronomical reality. A month isn't. What would you think if we split the year up into 14 months? Well, like 13 months, maybe you can make an argument for the moon and everything, but like 14 months, I, I think we shouldn't probably because it's going to change up a bunch of stuff, but it's not reflecting any underlying reality. Similarly, like epoch, where is the boundary? Probably well, geologists think about this a lot, just as astronomers think a lot about the definition of planet, but the is it a new epoch is pluto a planet questions are ultimately socially constructed questions as opposed to are there changes that are happening um such that there is a real conversation that is happening around or changes happening that are so different that we should be calling ourselves in a different time um and is that ninth planet really acting as much like a planet as the other eight are should we call it something else i will make a slightly different argument yep there are going to be two kinds of epoch-level divisions. Yep. 
one kind is going to be graded and the other is going to be instantaneous. This is clearly, I think clearly, going to be of the graded variety and therefore will only be something one can diagnose in retrospect. An instantaneous one would be different, but because we're talking about one that is graded... But plutonium. Like that's I feel like this is the most instantaneous of all, with the possible exception of the KT boundary. Okay, but then I, then I don't think it is an APOC, because the plutonium... Plutonium could become a decisive, earth-changing factor if we produced enough of it and it was released into the environment, which is something I think we should fear. But it hasn't happened yet. But, I mean, until... <clears throat> so this lake is being proposed because it's got a stripe with plutonium in it. Uh, until this lake was proposed, it's like, okay, probably, you know, a bunch of geologists going like, I think we're in the Anthropocene now. They were saying actually post, you know, Industrial Revolution, that's the marker. Industrial Revolution because the the strata change. Right. Uh, and uh, you just get a... a, a they, they change at that point. And it's, you know, it's not instantaneous like the first bomb being tested or a giant freaking rock hitting the earth but it is about as instantaneous as you get in geological time well, compared but, uh, to all the mass extinctions except for the 165 million years ago right um, but to the extent that we are in a new epoch when we look back at this like an epoch boundary there is no distinction between the industrial revolution and plutonium that's right. the same instant it, well, exactly. Okay, but then it's not the plutonium stripe. It's something... But that's this is just like, this lake is now being used as maybe it's going to be the lake that we use, and it's because you can see the plutonium, and then other people are saying, ah, eh, let's call it back, back at, you know, in the Industrial Revolution. That doesn't matter at all in geological space. But, you know, the Holocene um, starts 11,700 years ago. Why? I don't know. Um, the Pleistocene starts 2.5 million years ago. The, what does it say? Paleocene? I even know the So, I mean, is the question, are we in a new epoch because of human activity? Yeah, I think we, yeah. Humans will not be around long enough for it to matter that we're in a new epoch. But, yeah, this is, there's no way humans aren't altering the planet uh, at the same level as, you know, most of those epoch changes. I just, I'm not, I'm not that interested in the question. Yeah, um, I'm not, I'm not especially be, interested uh, But I, but I am interested, if you would show my screen again, Zach, in, from this article from the CBC, where the proposed Anthropocene epoch sits in geological time, you know, here we have, you know, either 1950 or from slightly older assessments, the Industrial Revolution. Um, but I don't, I would like to see this this um, expanded into a, a scientific paper that says, okay, why why are these other boundaries where they are? You know, I know why that one is when it is the KT boundary, the you know Cretaceous yep. Tertiary boundary um, was the one that we kind of all know. Um, I can't even remember exactly what we think happened at the other mass extinction events, um, but I certainly don't know what might have happened fifty six million years ago, or thirty three point nine million years ago, or twenty three million years ago. Um, and so to the extent that these are all epochs uh, within the tertiary, um, 
I don't know why they've been broken down. So until like until I see that and and have an assessment of like what's in the hearts and minds of the geologists who are making these distinctions, um, why why are we considering ourselves expert enough to say well that's that's an epic but that's not? It's like that's a word that was created by geologists for use by geologists, and um, are we changing the planet? Yeah, you've got the Industrial Revolution, you've got plutonium spike, you've got even the Dust Bowl, you've got all these things evident in sediment cores from lakes, but is it sufficient or is it not to give it a new name right now? I don't know. Yeah, I think actually the uh, the right analogy is, um, I'm now forgetting the term for uh, somebody ascending to sainthood. I don't know. Um, there is a term and I'm just simply yeah. forgetting it. But anyway, the point is that used to be a process that took a very long time. And now there has been a tendency to accelerate the conversion of people who have recently passed into sainthood. And the point is, what makes you think you know enough so early to say that this person... So I mean, I I think that that is at the core of the grumblings about this, right? Like, how do you know yet? Yeah, I mean, looking at this chart, it looks really clear that it gets super, super granular as it gets close right. to now. And it it's gets like, faster and faster. Well, we have it, all of the noise is very clear, but to the extent that, yeah. you know, it was 50 million or like it was like 11 50, million. It years. was 50 million yeah. years between and then it got down to like 20 and now it, then it's in the couple of millions. And now it's like maybe the last epoch's only been 11,000 years. Well, that's, you it, know, that's that's in part because, I mean, again, what that reveals in part, like it could reveal a very stupid social trend, but it yeah. could also reveal the fact that we have more information the closer to the present we get. And well, so we will name things so that we can distinguish between them and understand the various things. And it's important for geologists doing work can't... here, wait, to distinguish between the Miocene and the Oligocene, even though the rest of us don't care. Right. Then and you... so if you're, you know, like if you're, if you're digging, if you're out like doing a paleontology thing um, and you are trying to describe to other people in your field, you want, you know, the, the more recent it is, the more likely things are to still be around, the more granular you might want your distinctions to be. So yeah, I hear you. I honestly, it, I've always heard this described as if it's um, actually something true about the planet. And well, but that's, this... that's why I started where I did. It's yeah. like, be, the, you know, the term itself, like planet, like describes real, describes an underlying reality, but that doesn't mean that the category is a fundamental reality. So the other analogy, maybe better than sainthood, is the fossil record itself. We have a lot of information about living species. The farther back you go, the fewer branches of the tree are represented in anything that we've found or know how to position. And so the point is the granularity is an artifact. It may be an artifact of time, but it's largely an artifact of uh, how much data has been lost. How much evidence yeah yeah where's where are the phylogenetic trees that have all of the extinct species well they'll never exist they'll never exist right. and you will take and it's lots not that of they things. it's not that those species didn't exist and didn't have relationships they did but we'll never we'll never get that right it's the fossil record inherently captures a small fraction of creatures that die of right. species etc um so there's an argument to be made based on having more information for greater granularity, but what must not be done is to infer from the greater granularity that some biological process has changed because it hasn't. And right. the same thing right. could be true geologically. Right. RFK told Brett that he has spasmonic dysphonia. 
Scott Adams used to have it, now cured. Can you put them in touch? Maybe it'll help uh, RFK's voice. Um, I can certainly point this out. Uh, my guess is he knows. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it doesn't hurt. Um, where did the intellectual dark web go? Will Ben Shapiro have you on to talk vaccines? You have to ask Ben Shapiro that. Um, where did the intellectual dark web go? Look, I think the intellectual dark web was a extremely successful prototype, and we need a new version. And in fact, Dave Rubin was alluding to a new version earlier today. Maybe that's why the question emerged. But, um, but look, there's a lot of people who miss the intellectual dark web. I'm not sure that it could have continued. Uh, to be a force in light of what tore it apart. Mm -hmm. um, but yep. that doesn't mean that it didn't, it, it was an excellent proof of concept. And uh, I look forward to seeing whatever the descendants are because we need them. Um, I don't know what this means. Congressional testimony, quote, the U.S. government has non-human biological tissue of pilots. I haven't, I didn't, I don't know that anything is happening. The there Congress. is, there is, testimony going on okay um i would say <laughs> let's put it this way what it seems that we have is testimony which mm -hmm. isn't a whole lot better than pixels right and what we would like yeah uh psyop until proven otherwise yeah um Right. Yep. And so the point is it doesn't matter that what, what they keep doing is throwing at us stuff in which, well, it's hard to imagine somebody lying about that. But the point is, we're we're so far beyond that. I'm I'm more fascinated than the average person by orders of magnitude. As soon as we have something that isn't uh, people saying stuff or pixels that don't inherently mean anything about what physically took place. Yep. Um. So we have a question about war. I'm going to save that for next time. Okay. Um, because I'm feeling that we <clears throat> have been at this for four hours at this point. <clears throat> and, um, and uh, yeah. Like is that. the question war what is it good for? Because I'm pretty sure I know. We will get to that next time. Mm -hmm. So until we see you next time, uh, we encourage you to check out um, various things like our store and uh, natural selections and such. And we'll be back. How'd that happen? Yeah. When did that happen? That's what I want to know. Later. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. When will <laughs> Yeah. taken? Yeah. Uh, and and what else? I feel like there are other... Oh, our Patreon uh, private Q&A. Usually it's the next day because we've been doing these on Saturdays. But uh, if you want to check us out halfway between now and our next live stream, uh, come join my Patreon at... Uh, my name is Heather Hyings. Patreon uh, for our Sunday... Private Q and A. I don't even know what day of the week that is. I mean, I know what day of the week it is. Yeah. I don't know what date of the month that is. That's day the thirtieth. Sunday, Sunday, Super Sunday. That's right. Now exactly. in Fontana. It's not going to be on uh, Sabado Gigante, but uh, no, but Sunday. it will be in Fontana. Yeah, you, they, will, anywhere the internet is, including Fontana, you'll be able to access. Yeah, it. come join us if you're in Fontana. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'll be at 11 a.m. on Sunday, and uh, what else? Until we see you next time. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. <laughs>